now we're installing them a new belief, giving them a new identity of like, no, you're a, you are an investor. You need to start thinking like an investor and we're going to give you this identity. I'm just so like freaking fortunate and lucky that I, I didn't lose any money. I lost a lot of sleep and I lost a lot of uh, self-respect, but I did not lose money. Apparently the guy that coached her was basically sleeping with her for money. Welcome to the Freedom Chasers podcast, where we bring you interviews and discussions that share the stories, successes, goals and dreams of real estate agents and real estate investors pursuing a life of purpose and freedom. Here we are with Sam Kwok. We are super excited to be talking with you today, Sam. You are a, a, a monster in the space of real estate. Um, we love everything that you and your brother are doing with Kwok Brothers Media. Um, Sam, we love to just kick it off with a story. You've been in real estate a long time, man. Could you just tell us one of the craziest real estate stories or experiences that you had, and this could be transactional, tenant-based, construction-based, whatever comes to mind, brother. Sure. Yeah, I mean, almost almost all of it is uh, tenant-based because uh, I, I feel like I, I'm living inside of like a um, uh, what was that TV show a long time ago? Um, uh, J Jimmy oh, Jerry Springer. Jerry Springer. Uh, Jerry Springer yeah. Right? yeah, yeah, Jerry Springer. Yes, I feel like I'm. I feel like I'm living inside of that, you know, and I'm, I'm like the recurring character of, of um, Jerry Springer's <laughs> show when, when dealing with tenants. Uh, I, have, I have a particular story. Uh, this was almost five years ago. I remember this so vividly because honestly, it was one of the most dramatic, like, like this is such a waste of time moment. But um, I, I had a tenant basically, and sadly it had to, it had to end this way, but I had a tenant. I, 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 was, I was buying a three-unit apartment building in Chicago. And right as long as I'm buying it, um, I had an old high school friend of mine reach out. Um, and and, and there, there was like, there were, just for like uh, transparency and honesty, there's, there was nothing romantic between her and I. Just I, let me just put that out there, right? Um, and um, and she, she asked, she asked uh, reached out and said, hey, you know, Sam, I'd see you in real estate. We're looking for a home like, or a place to rent. And I knew in the back of my mind, I'm like, okay, I, I like, I, I have a rule of not renting apartments or renting homes to friends or anyone like family or anyone I know personally. Right. But I, and I'm like, you know what, I'm going to create, I'm going to do an exception to the rule here and I, I'm going to let her slide. So at, like, right as I'm buying this, this three unit apartment building, she reaches out saying, Hey, I'm looking for an apartment a home or whatever. And, and again, back, back in my mind, I'm like, I know I shouldn't be doing this, but like, I'm just going to let it slide. Uh, and I do it, and and she brings a friend, and I'm not going to mention any names here to to, to protect the innocent uh, <laughs> or the guilty. Uh, and and she and, and and this friend, this other friend, I mean, she's a hot mess. She she is a hot mess. I mean, probably a lot of a lot of issues. I'm not I'm not a psychiatrist, so I'm not going to diagnose anything here today. But lots of issues. Uh, but at, at the same time, like I, I took a little bit of compassion and pity on them because they. At the time, they were living in this really dangerous neighborhood in Chicago, Southside Chicago. Uh, we call that area Crazy 100s. Um, no, no, no one should be living there if if safety is one of your top priority. Uh, and so, especially for for two for two ladies like to live there, very very dangerous. So I'm like, uh, you know, being being you know the compassionate guy I am. I'm like, yeah, I'm, I'm gonna let you guys stay here, even if it's for temporary temporary. You know, just get you guys going. Um, so I do the thing, have them apply, apply, right. Have the application, make sure there's paper trail and everything. And, um, they pay the rent so far. So good. And the second month, they're, I, I don't get any, I don't get any rent pain from the, from that. Like it's been, 
five days since the, the due date and no rent payment. I'm like, Hey guys, what's, what's going on? Like you're, you're, you're supposed to pay. Like it was due five days ago and I, I don't hear anything. They're, they're just ghosting me. And then a few days go by and I get an email saying, Hey, you know, there's some issues here. Um, the, the toilet isn't flushing down fast enough. Uh, the mirror is falling apart or whatever. Um, just, you know, thing. And then, and they also mentioned, um, uh, roaches, which is the first time I've heard like in, in that, that apartment. And I'm like, roaches, what, what? like what, what's going on? So, uh, I go check it out, take, you know, and I'm like, yeah, I'll, I'll take care of it. We'll, we'll make sure it's, it's, it's figured out. Right. And, but that they're still not paying the rent. So I'm like, oh, this is, this is gonna be great. So, um, fast forward, they're still not paying rent. I'm, I'm taking care of them. I'm, I'm fixing stuff. I'm, I've, I bought, I buy them a new mirror, right? It's one of those like mirror that you open, uh, in, in your bathroom, buy them a new mirror, do uh, pest mitigation, pest control and all that still no rent. And lo and behold, what's happening later is, um, I, this is like 20, 30 days out. And so like now they're already two months late or two months behind. They, uh, send me this email very professionally written and this this is this is not written by these girls this they were coached there's someone's on on their side doing this like with them very professionally written i mean they're citing like codes from the chicago landlord tenant act you know stuff that like not even some of the major a lot of the uh uh landlords don't even know some of the, some of the stuff right and they're citing like well in, according to section 13.1 you're supposed to do blah 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 and i'm like okay these guys are getting, these guys didn't get coached from from someone and this becomes a massive headache for me because at that point they're like, I'm gonna, they're gonna take me to court, they're, they're taking me to court, and they're gonna file a complaint, whatever, right? So uh, I'm having a discussion with my attorney like 2 a.m. in the morning. I'm like, what do we do? What's going on? Like, I, uh, of course, at that point I'm like confessing of my my mistake of letting, you know, people I know, well, you know, live there. Um, so basically, we end up doing uh, basically this. I, I tell them, listen, guys. You can walk away from anytime you want. I'll even give you your security deposit back. I'll give you 30 days. I won't try to evict you guys, but get, you know, get out. Right. Um, and they, they agree and they're like, yeah, sure. We'll, we'll, we'll leave. We'll get out. Um, you know, as long as we give our, our, um, you know, security deposit back and I even let them stay there for free for 30 days. So at this point I only have one month of rent and for two months I'm not, I'm not collecting. Right. And so, you know, I make it very clear. Like you guys can leave whatever you want. So they do, they, they, they leave. I, I was actually kind of surprised. I thought they were, they were going to go, you know, they're going to stick around and they'll, they'll keep squatting as long as possible. And so they leave and I'm like, oh, okay, they're, they're gone. Like, thank God. Like I, now I can go turn this around and rent, rent, rent to someone else. Well, turns out that, <laughs> um, they decide to file a complaint with the city and they, they call the hot, I think it's like 611 or something. They call some kind of hotline and then they, they call and citing that there's all kinds of problems there. Blah, blah, blah. Um, oh, and you, and you know what it is. I, right at the same time, I decided I actually want to sell the property because like Chicago is, Chicago is not the most uh, tenant or landlord friendly. Like out of all the, uh, all the city, I think what's worse is like LA and New York City. And then Chicago is like number three. So I decided to sell the property. I'm like, I, you know, I'm done with this. There's enough pain and drama here where, where I, I, I'm not going to deal with this. So that's when I found that there was a co-violation because um, – they were working through the title. Uh, we're, we're getting ready to sell. The 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 attorney's like, hey, you know, there, there's code violations on this property, right? And I'm like, no. Like when we closed three months ago, the the title was clear clear, and, and there was nothing wrong. So I go to Chicago's website, look up the property, and lo and behold, there is. 
And uh, mind you, these two girls, uh, I rented out the second floor unit. So I let, let so second floor, all the complaints, there were like three, I think, uh, had to do with second floor. So guess who filed a complaint? Well, <laughs> it's, yours, it's yours truly the ladies. And it has to do with like, there was a crack window. Um, and then while the inspector was out there, they, they found out that the, uh, there was an issue with the chimney and I didn't even realize it was chi- there was a chimney. Uh, and then of course, pest, right? Roaches. And that was the, the, the complaint. And so I, um, just getting the chimney tuck pointed, it was like three grand. Um, and the inspector says, yeah, that looks good. It's fine. But I got to go look at the inside. But caveat, when I'm inside, if I see anything else, I'm going to have to write you up for it. And I'm like, I'm rolling the dice at this point. I'm like, oh, do I let this guy in? Or do I let this code violation kind of fester? So I'm like, you know, what the heck? What do I have to hide? I let him in. He's, and surely enough, there's no roaches. There's no, like, no pests, right? It's just made up thing. And no roaches. Everything's fine. The windows are repaired. Cool. And then um, he just, he's walking around. And he, he uh, the way that Chicago apartments are, like, the living room is in the front. And then all the, the kitchen's in the back. So he walks down the hall, gets to the kitchen. No problems there. And then uh, behind the kitchen is, is, is a porch. So it's a three-story porch. And he's walking around the porch, and, and, and he's taking his sweet time looking at the porch. He's, he's I don't know, he, he, he's falling in love with the porch. He's looking at it. He's measuring it. He's, like, doing things. And he's, like, he, and he's like, you know, do you know that your porch is out of code? Like, the whole thing? And I'm like, come again? Like, what did you say? Like, yeah, your whole, whole porch here, it's got to be gone. It's, it's got to be rebuilt. And mind you, this is three stories, like – and, and, and uh, later I found out that a couple years ago, like 2014 or 2012, there was an incident where in Chicago, a, a porch collapsed and like several people died and, and it was just bad. And so ever since then, a new code w- was, was basically enacted uh, saying every, every porch now has to be rebuilt, has to be anchored with concrete, certain depth, certain thickness, you know, everything. And, and I'm like, in my mind, I'm like, these girls should have never been in this like building ever. And, and at the same time, I get it. It's for safety. It's for, for the concerns of people. But here I am with the quote of like $15,000 to redo the entire porch, re-anchor everything, blah, blah, blah. So at that point, I'm like, crap, <laughs> right? Like I'm, I need to sell this, but I know I can't sell this with the code violation on it. But luckily, um, I, I, I did know someone who uh, had an interest in the property. He said, you know what, Sam? I, I, I get there's problems. I'll buy it as is. Um, very fortunate enough, I was actually able to get my money out. Like, so I didn't lose money. I didn't gain money. I, I just had the same exact money I put in, and I was able to take it out. But that had to be like the most crazy story. Like, because one problem left, uh, you know, went to another problem, to another problem, to another problem, and um, I'm just so like freaking fortunate and lucky that I, I didn't lose any money. I lost a lot of sleep and I lost a lot of uh, self-respect, but I did not lose money. So <laughs> that was, that was, but here's the crazy, here's the, here's the punchline, right? Later I find out that the, the friend of friend, the crazy one, uh, was uh, basically taking money in in exchange for letting guys come in and sleep Ooh. with her. So she was a prostitute and bam, I'm like, oh my gosh. <laughs> Like, you got to be kidding. And, and the, the way that I found out was um, several things. Like, apparently the guy that coached her was basically sleeping with her for money. Like, yeah. And then the guy that, that was coaching her was like number seven or number six broker in a particular uh, famous real estate broker in, here in Chicago. I mean, they're nationwide. But, like, he was like the number six guy producer in Chicago making good money. 
And I later find out like he, he was paying her to do the thing, to do the act. Um, and he's the one that was coaching um, her to, to say all these things in the letter and, and do all these things, right? Even like telling her to file a complaint. And so like, I've never met this guy. I, I have no personal beef with him, but like, I, yeah, it's, it's crazy. Like, yeah. So, I mean, it, wild. You, you can see. So, <laughs> so then yeah. I find this out and I'm like, oh my gosh, like this, it's crazy. But, um, yeah, <laughs> that's the, that's the wildest and the craziest story I, I, I probably can share. So let's, yeah, let's yeah. transition this a little bit. So that's a great story. Like, I mean, especially the punchline aspect, like, holy cow. Yeah. Um, you're still smiling. So that's good. So you've gotten through it. I've learned. I've learned. Yeah. Right. I've, I've turned this, this, this story of like uh, pain and like heartache and, you know, losing sleep into something I've learned today. Of like, I, I can't do that anymore. So, so, yeah. Totally. Yeah. So, so one of the reasons we like starting with these stories is we, we want everybody out there who's investing to realize like that these stories exist, you get through them, you live, and then you live to, to receive the cash flow by continuing on. Can you start us off by telling why is it so important for you to be investing in real estate and why you do it despite having to deal with, with these crazy situations? Yeah. So, I mean, it's not even real estate. It, it's literally every business. Um, you could be in crypto, e-commerce, info business, which is I, what, I, you know, what I do partly. Um, every, every business you're going to run into drama, like you, you just are like either it's lawsuit or a competitor doing stupid things to you. Um, you're just going to have it, it, the issue. Just it, the, the only thing with real estate is it just be, it, it feels more real because you're dealing with an actual building, right? You can actually see problems, you know, instead of them just kind of being a, a, a he said, she said kind of thing. Um, but part of it is no matter what business you're in or, you know, when you're an entrepreneur, it, it's it really comes down to two things. Um, personally, I, I think from a perspective is your ability to learn and adapt quickly and also the, the, your ability to bounce back at the face of challenge or resistance. And so with this, with this particular situation, I was challenged. I, 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 was, I was tested in my resiliency and, and my, my ability to bounce back. Uh, even despite something like this crazy things happening, you know, a prostitute almost ruining your career. Uh, it's just one of those things that I, I've learned how to increase my capacity to take on, you know, drama uh, and, and be able to learn from it and to glean from the hardship. So um, here's what I learned out of that is the, the, the larger your, your capacity to deal with these things, challenges, problems, and to overcome them, not only are you, are you awarded and rewarded in such a way that, that comes in magnitudes, but you, you, you as a person, the character become more establish you're more mature um at the face of challenge you're you're more you become more stoic uh so business is is a phenomenal vehicle to to not only improve yourself but also uh to to develop you know your character oh that's a fantastic answer um, i just i really love this story too because you basically you said you took this person from roseland you put them in a much better spot and they still yeah. They still didn't show you any appreciation. And it's just like, wow. Um, and like you were really yeah. doing them a solid yeah. in the first place, man. So it's crazy. I love right. what you just said. Like um, two biggest things in business, like to be able to learn and, and adapt and to persist through challenge. So you've been doing this for a long time, obviously, man. But like, how did you develop that mindset? And, and like, how long ago did you adopt that mindset? Was it very early on in your career or was it more recently? Yeah, good, good question. And resistance and challenge was always part of my life. Uh, you know, and I, I grew up as an immigrant, so I came here, I, I 
came to the United States back in 1999. So resistance was normal for me. Like I, that environment, like literally, like I, I felt like, um, it, you know, I, I felt like I built that resistance over time. Kind of like when you when you were exposed to a certain like level of radiation, like you build tolerance over time. Uh, it's a weird example I would use, but like it's true. Like you 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 become accustomed to that hardship, uh, challenges, things being just constantly being thrown at you. And, and that becomes normal uh, after a while. And so, like, I would say because of my upbringing, I had a predisposition to go, like, yeah, okay, whatever, like drama, sure. Like, we'll, we'll deal with it. We'll take care of it. We're, we're going to be okay. Uh, but someone who has not kind of gone through that and has a shock when they turn 18, 19, 20, and they want to start their own business. And at their first face of resistance or challenge or someone saying no, they're like, what is this? Like, I've, I've never felt this before. And they quickly go, this must be not the way, this, this must not be the way, therefore I'm not going to do this anymore. Whereas like for me, like, okay, yeah, I, I've dealt with this before. Um, even at an age where I, I have almost zero control over what's going on in my surroundings. Um, so it, it became innately familiar, even though, you know, these things were happening, um, you know, in, in my businesses. I'd like to dive in that a little bit deeper. So. I would like to know a little bit more about what that struggle was like coming to America and what some of the resistances you faced were. And then do you feel like your response to that being positive was a result of the coaching of your parents, your individual personality, other factors, maybe describe what led you to become strong in the face of adversity as opposed to, you know, maybe crumble under the pressure? Yeah. I, I think every immigrant will tell you that, you know, you have the challenge of the language barrier, the cultural barrier, um, people taking advantage of you because of your lack of awareness and language. Um, oddly enough, it's actually immigrants taking advantage of immigrants. It's, it's just kind of really weird, vicious thing. Um, a lot of the people who are not immigrants, they actually want to help you, right? They, they actually want to uh, pull you across and, 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 and they're a lot more generous than, than the fellow immigrants. But I, I think you're right. I, um, you know, what you're alluding to, you know, I had, a, I had wonderful parents, uh, very positive, very resilient, very strong. Uh, very, uh, they had conviction and passion to what the, the cause as, as to why they came here in the first place. And so, you know, you know, that, that did, that was rubbed on, onto me and my brother where, um, you know, at, at the face of challenge, you know, it was always, Hey, let's pray about it. Let's, uh, work, work this through. Let's, um, adapt, let's figure this out. Cause whereas if I had a parent that were like, well, let's just crumble to fear and let, let circumstances kind of override our, our choice. Yeah. I, I think. Um, I, I would have, I would have, I would have had a different programming growing up, but, uh, I was, I'm very fortunate to have parents that are very strong, um, very con conviction oriented. Uh, and I think that's, that's really what led me the way, uh, even as an, as an adult. So, um, yeah, so it was a combination of, uh, um, un unfortunate circumstances that did turn to fortunate lessons. Uh, and a lot of that has been facilitated by my, my parents. Oh yeah. That's a tremendous story. You know, I mean, a lot of the people that like some of the highest people that we've interviewed, um, have been immigrants and, and the story is kind of similar, you know, I mean, you have, yeah. you're coming to a strange environment and culture shock and all that crazy stuff on top of, you know, your family is probably putting a lot of pressure on you to be successful too. Um, right. so I'm curious, um, how was that? Like when you, did you choose to just be an entrepreneur and was your family super supportive of that? Because a lot of the other immigrants that we've interviewed, um, their families were opposed to that idea because they wanted their son or daughter to be, yeah. you know, a doctor or an attorney or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. It, so I, I'll say this and again, like, you know, I had tremendous support 
uh, from a parent, not financially, but just like psychologically, psychologically, you know, mentally, um, you know, they, they're always saying, Hey, whatever you want to do, do it with, with passion. Right. Um, you know, I, I'll never forget them saying like your, your, your career, uh, your choice of how, how you serve the world is, is a form of ministry. Right. Um, so, you know, that, that, that kind of stuck out to me and, and, um, you know, that kind of gave me the freedom to explore and experiment. And that's, that's ultimately how I kind of chose entrepreneurship is I experimented with different things. Uh, I, I joined the military, found out it wasn't for me <laughs> long terms. Uh, I, you know, went to school, found out it wasn't for, it wasn't for me. And I, when I became an entrepreneur, um, bam, right. I was like, okay, this is it. So I think a lot of it was, uh, parents that let me experiment, like obviously not experiment with like drugs or anything like that, but like parents that let me experiment with like the career choices, what I want to do, what I want to be. Uh, and, and that was huge. And I, I felt like I had the ultimate freedom to do that. Uh, although, I mean, there's always a pressure for like, oh, you know, parents saying, I, I kind of want you to do this, this thing here on the you know, whatever, but they weren't to the point where like, they were like dictating my life schedule around what they wanted. Right. Uh, it was almost always like, Hey, you do what you want to do, pursue your, your passion. And then you, I think they knew like, if you, if you, if you own that decision, like you, you'll just naturally be great at it. Uh, so I think they, them giving me the freedom and the space to own what I wanted to do and, um, and, you know, discovering entrepreneurship when I was 19, you know, they, they've kind of opened that door. So yeah, um, just a lot of it, it does, I think felt like came from, from parenting for sure. Yeah. Awesome. And so I know I want to make the most of the time that we have together. So I want to get into some of the things that you have learned and you're teaching, because I think they could be of such benefit to other people. So can you describe, you know, the, the main, like, I know one of the things that you guys teach is about how to pay your house off faster. So right. maybe we could start there and, and give our audience a way of, of expediting their, their freedom. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm, I'm all about freedom, all about, um, you know, setting people free financially. And a lot, a lot of times, even the Bible, um, you know, Jesus, Jesus talks about money 25% of the time of his sermons. Uh, a lot of people don't know that because oftentimes money has connection to people's heart and vice versa. So when you, when, so Jesus talks about money because inherently money is connected to people's heart and he can get to, he can get to people's heart faster by talking about money, right? Talking about what, um, what, intrinsically feels like value and how we exchange value. So, um, so I, I realized the sooner I can get to a place where I can help people, uh, have peace with money and, and have a different relationship with money that looks a lot different than what, what most people have. Um, I knew not only was I fulfilling my, my purpose that, that God's given me, but also, uh, I, I felt like that's the quickest way to transform people because oftentimes, uh, money's the reason for divorce. Money's the reason for, for people, you know, kids growing up the way they are. Um, there's, there's a lot to that. So, um, one of the, one of the things that we teach is teaching people how to pay off their mortgage faster, but not like, I'm not going to mention names, but not the, the Tennessee radio host way. Um, but more so like in a very uncon unconventional way that, that I, th I think isn't being necessary to talk about. So, um, so oftentimes when I talk about that, people ask me, well, Sam, why, why, why should you pay off your mortgage faster? You know, isn't it better for you to go take any extra money or resources you have, invest it, and put it on the market, or do something else with it? Um, and so, I'll be real quick, brief, and brief on this. But like, one of the biggest traps, and people don't even talk about, even financial experts, they don't even talk about this. Surprisingly, is that uh, the the average American today in 2022 is way more mobile than Americans back in 1980. 
Like we move more often than ever before. In fact, the U.S. Census Bureau data uh, in 2010 says that the average American moves 11.7 times per lifetime. Okay, so we no longer do this thing where like you stick around, work for 40, 40 years, expect the company's gonna take care of you, live off a pension, and that's it, right? Now you're like going from one career to another career to another career, switching one job to another job, another job, like very transitional, right? So how does that it, how does that translate to the mortgage world? World where well, 15 years ago, or, or actually 40 years ago, um, having a five-year mortgage, 10-year mortgage, 15-year mortgage was a norm, right? Back when in the 80s, where the interest rates were like 13, 14, 15, 18 percent, the amortization period, so the the, the length of your mortgage, uh, was typically between five to 15 years. Now ever since Fannie and Freddie, now it's 30 years, 30 years. And uh, in some places like California, they're talking about 40 year mortgages. It's, it's like, it's, it's insane. So here, here's the, here's where the dichotomy of, of social economic behavioral change and also the changes to the mortgage uh, industry is that now we have 30 year mortgage as, as the norm. People are moving 11.7 times their lifetime, which means if you, if you extrapolate that, assuming you live to be about 80, you're moving every six, six to eight years. Well, if you look at any mathematical um, modeling, uh, if you look at the, the, how amortization works on a mortgage, really, especially now at five, six, seven percent interest rate, the first 10 years of that is interest payments, right? Mm -hmm. Like bulk of 80% of your monthly payment is, is going really towards interest and very s small amount of that is making any significant progress towards actually paying down the mortgage. So here's what's happening. You live, you live in that same house for six to eight years and you move, buy a new house, get a brand new mortgage, do that again, six to eight years, sell your house, buy a, new, buy a new home, get a new mortgage. What's happening is that most Americans are living in that first 10 years of their mortgage cycle where vast majority of that is interest. And then right as, as when they're about to transition or like progress over to uh, the part where they're, they're making more principal payment, they're starting all over again back to score one, right? So what's happening is there's this, hamster wheel of never ending, never ending, uh, interest payments over and over and over again. This is why you'll meet people in their sixties and seventies. They still have 25 years left to go on their mortgage and they're nowhere near close. Like there's not, and that's the number one, um, crutch right now, or, uh, you know, wait, I, I would say that's preventing people from actually retiring from actually being able to say, I can live, you know, on a smaller budget or downsize or whatever. So. Even, you know, I, I remember two years ago when people were like, well, the interest rates at two, two and a half percent. Why would you ever pay off your mortgage? Blah, blah, blah. Well, in six to eight years. Okay. So let's put that in the timeline. It's 2000, 2020 where people were getting like two and a half percent interest rates, right? Six to eight years from now. So that's in 2026, 2028. Do you think the interest rates are going to be at 2.5% ever again? Probably not. Right. I, I think long-term norm, we're going to be at five. So in six to eight years, if they're likely to move downsize or upsize, whatever the case might be. Now they're going to land, land in a situation where they're going to have a brand new 30 year mortgage at 5% interest rate. So did, did your 2.5% interest rate really matter? No, it, it, it basically. So interest rates are just really marketing traps that a lot of, a lot of banks use to get people refinanced because that's the only like originating new more new loans are really the only way that bank, banks make their money because they don't really make money off the interest. It, that's the, the, unless you're a bond purchaser, right? But most banks make money purely based on the volumes uh, of how, how many mortgages that they create every single month. That's it, bar nine, right? So how do you artificially create more refinances and new mortgages? Lower the rate. And you, you just got yourself new demand, right? So 
um, that's one of the things that we teach is how to how do you get yourself out of that trap, how to stop being a hamster, and how do you actually start paying it off and control your cash flow and control your own money. Uh, because that's one of the first things that a lot of Americans don't know or how to do is control your your money, your budget, your your cash flow, and and how to how to make more of that. So that's one of the first things we teach. Um, real estate, you know, is, is something we teach as well as as kind of the next thing. Um, but also wealth preservation, how to keep it, how to don't how not to lose it. Um, so that's one of the biggest things, like aha moments that I, I try to give people to understand. Oh crap! Like we're we're screwed. Uh, if we keep doing the things that we're doing right now, which is what the banks and the government wants. So, yeah, I, I really appreciate you talking about this and diving into this. And so I want to dive deep into this if we can. So like you've got several problems, it seems to me from the surface. Problem number one is like you're constantly in the wrong part of the interest cycle, which I appreciate you yeah. commenting. I don't think about that too much. So this is kind of a cool thought. And then there's also the element of if you're moving every six years, you've got real estate costs on both sides and those wipe out lots of equity every time, assuming you're not a licensed agent and all of the places you're moving, you're losing tons of equity there. So I'm kind of just mentally trying to wrap my mind around this where what is the solution other than just telling people not to move, right? Because it's essentially they're, you know, if you're usually only refining, well, I shouldn't say this because people pull out cash all the time out of their houses, but, but you know, other than like, I mean, a refinance down an interest rate could possibly be a benefit, if, especially if they take a shorter term, but once they move, what are the options or what do you guys recommend for yeah. them? Well, even if you do move move down to a shorter term, like let's say you go from 30 to 25, still doesn't negate the fact that it's amortized. Sure. Uh, and and so the, the the way that math works with, with amortization still bulk balloons at the beginning, right? Yep. yep. Exactly. So so he, the solution is this, okay? Um, and it, it actually starts with another problem. With your checking account, let's say you put, you know, you have $10,000 checking account. What, what is your bank paying you to have your check, to have your money sitting in your checking account? Nothing, basically. Like nothing, right? So, yeah. and, and people don't know that when you deposit money into a, either a checking account or savings account, you're literally lending them money. Like you're, you're giving the banks the permission to take your money as a collateral and borrow more money so that they can do the thing that I just told you that they're, they're doing. So stop giving the banks the free freaking loan because, you know, inflation says 8% right now. So you're losing 800 bucks a year. So, the, so here's, here's a solution, right? That's a, that's a problem. So there, there's two problems in here, right? Mortgages suck. Checking accounts suck. What, what, what is the alternative? So there's an instrument, uh, a financing tool that allows you to essentially treat your house like a checking account. Here's what I mean by that. Mm -hmm. um, by reducing your, your balance on your mortgage, it's true or not that you can save money on interest, right? So the lower the balance, the, the, more, the, the less interest you pay. So what if you can go and actually uh, take whatever excess money you have, you know, savings and cash flow, and dump it into your mortgage, but you can bank out of it at any time you want. So as long as your cash flow positive in almost all months, you're essentially going to save a lot of money and but still have flexibility to tap into that money whenever you want to. So um, we use an instrument called a line of credit. I wish there was a better instrument, better tool than this, but this is probably the, the best uh, tool that exists right now that, that's gonna allow us to do this. So we use particularly a, a home equity line of credit, a HELOC. And I know there's a lot of bad taste and misinformation about it, but the, the, the beautiful thing about HELOCs is it does exactly what I just described. You can take all your savings, your money, your checking account, cash flow, put it in, in, into the home equity line of credit. It lowers the balance, right? And therefore you pay less taxes or pay less interest, also maybe taxes too, but uh, less interest. But when you need to take the money out for purchases, you grocery shop or whatever, you can get that money out whenever you want to. 
Um, and, and something that we also teach our clients is don't touch your HELOC directly. Use credit cards. Um, you know, I, I love, personally, I love American Express because they give you a crap ton of points just for like everyday shopping. So um, why not use American Express for credit cards that give you points or whatever? Um, use that for all your purchases. And then at the end of the month, pay off your, your credit card using a HELOC, right? So you're basically, you basically had 30 days uh, of a period where you didn't pay any interest and you had a lower line of credit balance in such manner that it, it, it will produce less interest that you have to pay. So this is a method that we teach uh, to our clients. It's actually a normal thing in places like Australia and New Zealand. Uh, they call it an offset account uh, where you just bank out of, your, out of your home, your home equity. And that's, it's a normal thing for them over there. Uh, but obviously it's not here because, well, banks need, banks need to make their money. So yeah. it would be cool to see more products like this. You know, I mean, obviously there would be some concern for me, like people being responsible enough to bank responsibly with their, yeah. with their house, which I mean, a HELOC and all these types of refinance instruments, you know, are concerned anyways. I, I'd like to play a little bit of devil's advocate here uh, yeah. on this, if you'll allow me to. So, because it. I do like the principle a lot. So one of the things that I like about savings account, despite that they don't give you anything, is that like it's quick access, which a HELOC mm -hmm. does. A lot of the way that our HELOCs are structured here, at least my experience with them, is they're callable, meaning yeah. you can get a 10-year term limit, but they could say at year three, hey, we ain't letting you borrow off this anymore. How do you deal with like those types of difficulties, like with call limits and whatever? If someone sunk all their money, all their reserves in their, their mortgage, maybe even pay it off, they get a HELOC. Then six months later, markets change, banks call mm -hmm. back the HELOC. Now they have no money and no way to get access to money. Yeah, Ex excellent question. So um, here's, here's a couple, there's a couple ways I, I, I answer that because it, it, it is a concern with security for a lot of people. So um, number one, uh, I, so a lot of people, it, it's weird because like, this, this is how banks like create control opposition in, in a way. So um, a lot of people actually don't know that their mortgages are also callable. Like if you actually read your mortgage contract, it says banks can call this no due anytime they want to. Obviously, they don't because, you know, why would they? Uh, as long as you're making payments, you're good, right? So in circumstances, both HELOCs and mortgages are callable. So when people ask or tell me that or, or that's, that's their objection that they throw at me, like, well, go read your mortgage con contract and tell me what it says about being called. Because I'm willing to bet you it says the same thing. Like a mortgage is just an instrument like of, of – um, securitizing your collateral to the promissory note. That's, that's all it is. Same thing with the HELOC. Um, so that's number one. Uh, number two is that um, you can go and just get another HELOC, right? The beautiful thing about a HELOC is it's a non-QM, meaning that there's no one standard guideline that Fannie and Freddie says, this is what you need to buy by to keep the HELOC lending. Um, there are certain banks that use hedge funds uh, to fund their, their HELOCs, um, and hedge funds buy them up for, for bond, pur bond purposes. Um, so not all HELOCs are created equal and not all banks offer the same type of HELOC. Uh, and that's, that's a beautiful thing is if one does call you and say, and a lot of times they'll freeze it and they'll just say, Hey, you can't touch this money anymore. Well, okay. Just go to another bank and get it, get another one. And, and, and they'll happy to, to take you on as a customer. In fact, one of the things that we teach your clients is make sure your, your checking account and your HELOC are on the same bank so that you can make those transfers quicker. So what bank wants to lose their customer and take, you know, have the customer take their deposits with them with another bank. Just like makes no sense, right? Um, and and the, the anecdotal approach I'll give you this is that I've, I've, been doing, I've been doing this close to seven years. I've yet to lose a single client 
because their HELOC was called, frozen, shut down, whatever. Even through the COVID pandemic, I've yet to lose a single one. And a lot of that has to do with the fact that the banks stopped doing predatory lending. They, they actually now have a law, right, on not doing 125% loan-to-value loans, which is, like, ridiculous. Uh, and a lot of, that, a lot of the, the shutting downs and freezing, a lot of that came from 08 to 2012 when banks were doing dumb things like 125% loan-to-value. Right? They were literally lending you more than what you, you, you could possibly like, have in your, your home value, thinking it would just keep appreciating, but we all knew that wasn't true. Um, so from from regulatory standpoint, there's protection. From anecdotal standpoint, I've never seen it happen with over 1,700 clients that I have. Um, and also the fact that if it does happen, there's other safeguards and there's plan B and plan C. Um, so that that's not really it's not a particularly a huge concern for us knowing that even with the mortgage you you can still have it called um so that's yeah let's that's let's say that so you're saying if i have a 30 year fixed mortgage in most and obviously maybe every mortgage is different depending on how they're written i'm making my payments on time they could still call that even with payments being made on time it's on it's in the contract so here's the thing. It's just because it's on the contract it doesn't mean that they're necessarily going to do it banks sure. are just giving themselves an option right like they do on like, sale clause yeah yeah exactly so like for example um, let's say there's, I don't, I don't know, Russia decides to launch nukes and Taiwan's invaded, um, market goes upside down, dollar crashes or whatever. Maybe I can see them saying, all right, you need, you know, we need to accelerate the, the, the payment or the accelerate the mortgage balance. I can, maybe that you know, doesn't, doesn't happen, but, um, just because it's there, it, it, you know, it doesn't always happen. I mean, it, it's just government backed loans, right? It doesn't happen. So, yeah. Interesting. So I want to dive into the question of essentially, because, you know, on the surface, it appears you're obviously encouraged people to have way less cash in the bank and, and have it in their home. What parameters, like how much access maybe in proportion to their expenses every month, should they have even more easily available than a HELOC? Any at all? Or are you saying like what amount of cash they should still have or yeah, in the bank where that's like accessible in 10 seconds? Yeah, so I mean, my argument is that HELOC, it gives you access in seconds, right? Like you go to your online banking, move money around, boom. I mean, your balance sheet doesn't change because you still have, you know, it's your assets, right? Your money doesn't disappear because it's it's part of your equity. It's it's still there. But if you're talking about cash, I mean, I I do have some of my clients that still are kind of like they can't get themselves out of that mindset of like I still have to have cash. Um, some of them do have you know three months of savings or three months of uh, expense equivalents, right? Um, they still have that, although my, in, in a perfect world, you would still want to have all your savings kind of dumped into your, your, your home equity, mainly because of the fact that a inflation is riding that away. Uh, and B you could, you could be saving anywhere between five to 7% on interest reduction simply because of principal reduction. Um, uh, but I get that there's, there's also a level of, you know, um, psychological safety or, um, you know, just being, have the the peace knowing that there's still cash available. That's fine. I, you know, it's not. You don't have to be perfect to do the strategy, but um, yeah. So it it all comes down to the level of what what allows you to sleep better at night, but it still moves the ball forward of actually reaping the benefits of the strategy. Absolutely, I love everything you're talking about here. I mean, I've I've got so much notes here. I'm going to be doing a lot of research. So thank you so much for sharing all of this stuff. I'd love to talk about the rest of the Quack Brothers trilogy. So we've really just gone over the first one on how to pay off your mortgage quicker. Um, yep. step two is how to invest in real estate. So like, what is your typical path that you bring people on in yeah. the journey? Yeah, I love it. 
So this is the part that, so I, as much as I love helping people pay off their mortgage, like it's kind of one of those things like helping people pay off your mortgage is like a triage, right? Like we're helping you stop bleeding your money because that's really what you're, what, what's happening. You're bleeding, you're losing money over to the banks because of your ignorance. Um, I love talking about real estate because this is now about like, let's train you up, right? Let's, let's help you build muscles. Now that you're well, you're, you're not bleeding anymore. Uh, let's help you make big muscles, right? Uh, and there's unlimited potential here. We can talk all kinds of strategies. I love it, right? I, I, I love the gains. Um, so the, the one framework that we use over and over and over again, this is like our number one real estate playbook. We, we don't really do anything else. We don't do the wholesaling thing. We don't do, um, I, I love fix and flips cause it, it is sexy, right? I can't, can I say, is this PG? Like, yeah, you're good. Like, but it, yeah. So I, I, I love it, but like the, the bread and butter for us, the, the one framework we come back to it all the time is something we call the four strategy. So the four strategy is, uh, find a deal, raise the capital. Uh, oh, it's find a deal, owner finance it, raise the capital, cash flow it, and expand your empire. So uh, initially, we, we thought about calling it Fork, F-O-R-C. I'm like, that sounds weird. Like, you know, <laughs> why, why would I? Why, that, that just sounds weird. Like, let's call it Force, right? So uh, F-O-R-C, right? It's a force to be reckoned with. So um, find a deal. We find way find deals very creatively uh, through through like uh, we actually go through court records. Um, we also have a way of using certain database softwares to go and look for certain owners and, um, we can actually hit certain demographics and age. Like we, we specifically target, uh, landlords who are retiring and they're on the back end of that. Um, so there's different targeting, uh, we can do for finding deals creatively. And then there's owner financing, which again, if you, I mean, for the last 20 minutes, thematically you heard, I am not a friend of the banks. Okay. So <laughs> any chance that we can, we can get of not using the banks, we're going to do it. And the way we're doing that is we're going to do it owner financing. So for those that know, don't know what owner financing is, it's a simple agreement between like, let's say Tim's the seller and I'm the buyer. T I'm going to basically make monthly payments to Tim, to Tim, just like Tim's the bank, right? And then in exchange, in exchange, Tim gets to collect interest payments. There's yes, there's amortization, uh, but it's not the banks that are benefiting, right? It's, it's Tim, mm -hmm. uh, it's a private party sale. So. Uh, a lot of times I like owner financing because it doesn't hit your credit credit report. You don't need to turn in uh, any income documentation. Um, it doesn't affect your DTI from the perspective from the perspective of the banks, uh, and it's very safe because let's say you stop making payments, it's not going to hurt you. There's no foreclosure, um, you know, or, mm -hmm. or publicly, right? So uh, that's owner financing. We raise the capital, which you know, to do these deals we need down payments. So we're we're partnering up with people who do have the money to come in, partner up. And, you know, whether we give them 40%, 30% or 50% of the deal, they're also coming in benefit. And you're also benefiting from the fact that you're now walking into this deal without any money put in it, right? Mm -hmm. And then cash flow it. And it has all, all to do with proper management, making sure you have the right tenant in there. You know the system. It's a business at that point. And expand your empire is basically rinse and repeat. Like you do that mm -hmm. over and over and over again to ultimately, you know, and the, the beautiful thing about the four strategy is it's not limited to like just single family or like four unit. You could do this literally like this framework still works on a hundred unit apartment building, uh, and, and do that one deal and you're, you're done. Like, you know, for most people, like a hundred unit apartment building is all they need to retire. Mm -hmm. Um, so that's, that's typically our goal is to help, um, our clients go from paying their mortgage off to shifting their gear and the mindset of going, okay, I, I want to own real estate. Uh, to owning like a hundred unit and then they're retired, they're, they're done. And that's really it. That's the, so that's the second part of this trilogy is um, it, it's more than just real estate and, and strategy and tactics. It's, it's awakening them to the, the possibility of 
Yeah, yeah, you can you can be like Donald Trump if you want to. Like, there's no there's no law that says you can't be you know super wealthy. Okay, anyone can. And so a lot of it, that is like helping them destroy their old beliefs of like oh, I I, I got to work till sixty five and retire. Now we're installing them a new belief, giving them a new identity of like, no, you're, you are an investor. You need to start thinking like an investor and we're going to give you this identity. So mm -hmm. um, that's, that's honestly like 80% of the work with our clients uh, and 20% is tactics because tactics is easy. Mindset's like super hard because we're dealing with people who are in 40, 50, 60s and it just can't like, it's hard. <laughs> so that's, oh, yeah. that's the second part of the trilogy. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, this makes a lot of sense. Um, mindset in general in business is is usually the problem that anybody's having. Correct. So I'm I'm super intrigued with what you're doing on the creative side because I mean I'm a big fan of seller financing as well. I'm curious. Yeah. Do you guys ever just um do you do seller wraps? Um, do you teach that as well, or yeah. are you just looking for partners essentially? Because I mean it's a great opportunity for wraps right now. There's so many high income, low credit people yes. out there right now. I mean it's just a massive massive opportunity yeah so yeah i, I love doing wraps as well um as long as the numbers work right because you're literally having a mortgage and then you're building something on top you know you have a separate financing on top of that um yeah that, that works um yeah i mean it, i guess it all depends on what the seller wants right mm -hmm. um yeah so um part of why people love owner financing is because <clears throat> when um and i'm talking specifically about like um contract for deed so uh, in the scenario of contract for deed, especially when you're hitting these retiring landlords, a lot of times they've held this, held these properties, properties for a very long time, 10, 20, some I've met like 30 years. They've literally like bought it when they got married and then like their kids are all off to college and school and whatever. Uh, a lot of, a lot of times they're going to have a lot of appreciation. So they're gonna have to pay a lot of capital gains. The beautiful thing about seller financing and refinancing is help. It helps them delay some of that capital gains over time. So that they're not giving it all away like to, to the IRS, right? Right. In a one giant lump sum payment. So that's another tactical thing that um, you know, I can see why sellers may pick owner financing more than doing a wrap because of mm -hmm. the tax consequences and reasons. So yeah. Of course. Yeah, absolutely. It makes perfect sense. So I mean, we gotta hit the whole trilogy, obviously. So step three, yep. how to preserve wealth and grow it. So let's talk about yeah. that. Yeah, so the last part of the trilogy is something um we invent this. I mean, I I wish I can like take credit for all these things that are, that like we teach, but we, we don't, we're not that smart. Uh, uh, we're, we're smart about teaching it, right? Like how, how we deliver and, and, you know, being really efficient at it. But the last part of the trilogy <clears throat> is something called infinite banking concept. Um, a lot of people know, um, it's the, the, the father of infinite banking concept is Nelson Nash. Um, he's got a great book called becoming your own banker. Um, all of you guys should check it out. Um, but, Infinite banking concept. There's a lot of misconstrued mis information, a lot of fake information, false information out there. Some insurance companies are out there like, oh yeah, we teach, we teach IBC. Don't come, come get insurance policy with us. But they, they just don't. It's just, unfortunately, it's been, uh, it's been used as more of a marketing ploy and a sales ploy than it is actually like a tactic that's done correctly uh, for a purpose. But let me kind of dispel a lot of the uh, things and, uh, and, and I, I I asked all of you guys listening to this, like, go do your own research. But basically the premise of IBC is um, it's very similar to our first trilogy, Accelerator Banking. And that has to do with the idea of, like, stop relying on the banks for financing. Like, why rely on the bank? Because all, all money is, in, is actually part of the same pool, right? Whether it's with insurance companies, the banks, government, it's all part of the same pool. Like, same, you know, um, source, right? So what, what Infinite Banking Concept teaches is that 
instead of banking with your bank and paying them interest and paying them fees, why not become you, why not become your own bank through instruments like life insurance? And a lot of people think life insurance is for for dead people and and you get it when you die and you don't really see it, you know, until you're dead. Uh, and that's surprisingly not true because yes, there's the death benefit part of it, but with what's powerful about in but with life insurance is it gives you uh, specifically whole life gives you something called cash value. So cash value, the, the beautiful thing about it is it's kind of like a savings account on steroid and it's not facilitated by a bank or it doesn't benefit the bank. It actually benefits you, right? You are the owner, you know, you, you and the insurance company has a private, you have a private contract where no one sees that saves, no one sees that account except for you and the, the facilitator. So, um, I'll paint a scenario, right? So let's say um, you, you start a life, life insurance policy, a whole life policy to be, to be precise. Um, you're going to pay the premiums. Obviously, there's, there's that aspect of it. But you can do something called a paid-up advance or some people like to call it overfunding their cash value. So what I can do is I can overfund my cash value and my cash value can, can earn anywhere between 4 to 6% dividend. It really depends on you know, who the company is. And so my cash value is growing just like a savings account, right? You know, but the only difference is here's the, here's the cool part. I can actually borrow against the cash value uh, using what's called non-recognition recognition loan. And I can just borrow from it. And let's say I have like $100,000 in my cash value. And I'm going to go borrow 20 of it to go buy, you know, a new car or whatever. The, the true beauty of this when done the right way is that the entire hundred is still earning the five to six or four to 6% dividend every year. Your 20, 20 grand is at work at financing that vehicle. And yes, you pay yourself back with interest, but that interest is ultimately going back to the cash value. So you're essentially like you are your own bank, right? Like, yes, you just financed it. Yes. You just, you know, you're paying interest, but that interest isn't being paid to the bank. It's being added to your pool, your cash value pool. And therefore you basically have a perpetually perpetually growing uh, cash value to where the beautiful thing is I know a lot of people borrow from the cash value as a retirement and because it's borrowed money, it's not subject to taxes. Uh, death benefit also when you die and, and your kids inherit or whoever your benefit or benefactor is, um, de uh, death value is not, or death benefit is not taxed. Um, it actually predates the IRS. So there's a, there's a lot of tax benefits and also, um, you know, you become your own bank. You're now an independent, you're, you're almost like a financial prepper, right? You don't, you got, you got your own grid, right? So to, so to speak. Uh, so you become your own bank and that's it. You, like, you basically finance, you know, you can finance your kid's college. You can finance car purchases. You can finance any large ticket purchases using your cash value. In fact, uh, I look forward to financing my daughter's braces out of the cash value, right? Instead of relying on a bank or payment plans. Um, so with all three trilogy, what it's designed to do is it's designed to give you ultimate freedom from any institution, right? You don't need the banks anymore. You don't need your job anymore. Um, you don't technically need a mortgage after you do the infinite banking. Like it just gives you, it allows you to build your own financial ecosystem, but the truth transformation is, this is the, the, the part we're trying to get at. The truth transformation is you become someone who can handle all that, right? You become someone who is intelligent who's got the skill set, knowledge, expertise to be able to go and say, yeah, here's my financial strategy. I don't need a financial counselor, financial you know, expert to tell me what to do with my own stinking money. So the, the, the exciting part is to see our clients transform. Sure, they're gonna make a lot of money, preserve it, protect it, do all that. 
But what we're more so excited about seeing them is becoming them becoming more sharper, becoming an expert of their own, and lead, leading a leg- legacy for their own family, and something that, something they could pass down to their kids, that which is knowledge, uh, financial awareness, and literacy, which I believe is really like I know there's a lot of like talks about socialism being popular with our kids these days. It, I truly believe this is our best defense against a lot of that happening uh, with our families and our futures. So. Um, really, that's that's the the core mission of our trilogy. Is yes, we want to help people make money, save money, and all that. But really, is it's the transformation and the redemption of their financial pain to become into a, a financial path of success. So, yeah, that's it. That's the that's the trilogy. Cool. So, I want to dive into this last part a little bit. So, you talk about its own financial ecosystem. So, I'm kind of fascinated by this a little bit. You mentioned the term prepper, right? So, I mean, generally, the term preppers can be meaning a lot of different things. One is like, you think we're going to be in a nuclear war, we're going to get blown up. The other is, yeah. right? Like after COVID and how things rolled out there, there are a huge group of people in the country that are worried that they're going to have the same freedoms, et cetera. So I just know in the network that I have, there's actually people taking money, buying a thousand acres in the middle of nowhere and building underground yeah. bunkers with sustainable farms. Like people are all over the board as far as what they think could happen. As far as being the financial ecosystem being different, your money's not in in a Wells Fargo or any of the main banks. Right. What type of account is it in, and and how does that how does that feel, or how is that safer than maybe holding it in a main bank? Yeah, because so uh, life insurance pre- predates the Federal Reserve, the IRS. Um, it, it literally like it because it existed already before all these new laws came out in 1912, 1913. Like it, they couldn't just like go back and change it because already there were millions of dollars sitting in life insurance, right? All the wealthy people in, in, in the turn of the, the 20th century had life insurance. So the IRS and the government knew they couldn't just go, they, they couldn't make laws to literally take their own money away or to regulate their own money away. So they had to leave it alone. So a lot of times, so the, the, the beautiful thing about life insurance, I mean, here's when I knew this was legit. There was a rumor that Joe Biden himself had like $33 million worth of cash value uh, with his life insurance policy. So, so here, so here it is, right? Like, here's how I'm thinking about this. Joe knows that he's the president of, or yeah, he thinks he knows. I don't know. Like, I don't know what what goes on in his mind these days. Maybe I, I don't know, but he thinks he's the president, right? So, like, what I have interest of putting my money where, like, my own rules and laws can't touch it, or do I want to be subject to my own, like, my own restrictions, right? Like, obviously, if I'm like the king of the United States or whatever. I would prefer to have a system in place where I can put my money in and I'm not subject to, subjugated to my own restrictions, which let's be real, right? Every country is corrupt, right? United States too, right? It's just like there's rules that are different here in the United States the way, the, the way that we see corruption. But like, so I, I always pay attention to like, where are the politicians putting their money in? Because I know they know the rule book. I know what, the, I know they're passing rules and laws that benefit them. So let's follow the money. Where is the money going? Well, a lot of times it's life insurance. Look at, look at Mitt Romney. He's got, you know, uh, Roth IRA up through the wazoo. It's crazy. Um, so I'm always paying attention to where are the ultra wealthy people putting their money in. In fact, here's a little bit of a teaser. Like th- I, I, this is probably the, the first I'll say this in a podcast, but I'm think I'm actually really considering writing a book um, called the, uh, it, it, so it's got, it's got a cover of like uh, the bill of rights, like we, the people, right? So I'm actually gonna call it, we, the rich people. Because it just when when a lot of the socialist people, you know, socialists and whatever, right, the left people would say, "Oh, the wealthy people, they they they're in their own club and and 
the, the poor people can't attain that wealth. Like there's actually some truth in that, right? The, the truth is like anyone can be wealthy here in the United States. Like I'm, I'm a story, right? I, I came here in 1999 as an immigrant, dirt poor, and I, I, I would say I'm relatively successful. Um, but to say that there's a bar or some kind of gate, I don't think that's true. The, the, the wall and the gate, the limitation is what do you know about the game of finances here in the United States, right? What do you know about the rules, right? Literally, you can go read the entire 1,600 pages of the IRS code, and there's actually stuff in there that's going to actually make you really rich. That's going to make you a lot of money because you're simply going to pay less taxes. So, um, so there is a rule book, a rule book and playbook that I, I truly believe that if more people understood and knew how to play it, they would actually have the same level of understanding that some of these politicians and wealthy people have to hack their, their strategies. So, um, yeah, so that's a book that I'm thinking about writing, like all the playbook, all the like underground secrets and, and strategies that wealthy people use, uh, particularly like Joe Biden. He, he, he uses them all, um, you know, <laughs> it's just what it is. But uh, yeah, so yeah, so really back to, back to your question. Um, yeah, I, 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 pay, I pay, pay attention to people who are writing the rules and, and creating the rules to see where they put their money in. And I figure out why. And then once I realize why, okay, all right, I'm going to put my money in there too. So that's exactly how I arrived to that conclusion of life insurance and, and um, some of these other, what it appears to be unconventional, but really they, they are the, the key to financial prosperity. Yeah, man, like with those topics, like how do we keep this podcast under five hours? You know, like there's so <laughs> much stuff that we could talk about. Right. So the one thing I'm curious about, because I don't own any uh, whole life life insurance. So this is a, I mean, I've been hearing about it the last few years, people talking about its benefits, but I haven't actually taken action. So just having term insurance, I pay money. I'll never see any of it unless if I die in that term and I won't see it. It'll be my kids that will see it. So, mm -hmm. and my wife. So with whole life, the money that goes in that's yours, what type of account is it held in? Yeah. Like, so it, it, it's, so I, I don't know the technicality. So I'll, 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 I'll my, my insurance agent takes care of it all. He's like, here, Sam, here's, here's a statement. Here's how, how much money you can borrow, whatever. Okay. Um, so I, I don't know the technicalities. I, I'll, I'll be honest. I, I'm not going to be here pretending I know something I don't. And, and but what I understand is I, I believe it's, it's a, it's a type of a, a mutual fund. Um, so it, again, I, I, I'm not going to get into technicalities. But what I do understand is that if I need to borrow that money, um, let's say tomorrow, I can call them up and say, hey, I need, th I need this amount. I'm going to borrow this amount and they'll wire it to me or ACHA within a day or two. So yeah. I, it, it's pretty quick to my checking account or whatever deposit, deposit account I want to use. Um, so, yeah. So like in the insurance companies, and, I, and feel free not to answer because obviously these are questions that, you know, um, maybe you can't answer or want to answer or whatnot, but like, so sure. with a bank, you're, you're, led, you're giving them your money. They're taking it and they're investing it in all kinds of things. So it sounds like that's similar here. They're investing it, you know, like a mutual fund type of scenario, but they have to give it back to you. A lot right. of the reasons people put money in the banks is because they're FDIC insured and there's mm -hmm. at least a reasonable chance they'll get that money back. Right. Is there protections like FDIC or what type of protections would somebody have putting their money into a whole term? So it's a private contract, right, between you and the, you know, the insurance company. So if they don't perform, I mean, the contract has to be upheld, right? So, you know, if, if, you're, if, you're, if you're being held to a certain guarantee uh, that the insurance company is promising, well, they better perform or you're, you're you know, there's a lawsuit, right? So, um, 
you know, but you know, the argument can be made, well, it's only a contract. Well, I mean, everything is a contract, <laughs> you know, like you have to understand that the, 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 the seriousness of which the parties actually perform an upheld contract, like, um, there has to be integrity there. So, um, personally, I trust in that integrity as, as long as that, I believe that the, the United States court will upheld the contracts and, and make sure it's being enforced. I, I have no beef with that. I mean, if there's ever a sign or, or, or a sign of weakening of any contract, that that will be kind of the end of the world because now I just set a precedence that, that any contract can be voidable or, or okay, who cares if you know the, the contract isn't being performed. Um, so basically what I'm getting at is it is being protected by a contract between you and the life insurance company. The, 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 the fact that there's a track record that, I mean, the court has been ruling pretty, you know, favorably, right, in terms of you know, upholding contract, I, I think there's there's high level of faith um, in, in, in a contract like that, so. Well, I guess I guess a person that's going to make the decision, should I put my money in a bank or should I put it in whole life, is banking on what yeah. who will be more honorable, right? Who's mm -hmm. more likely to perform? Is it this insurance company or is it the federal government or the banks that are backed by the federal government? Who's more likely to honor that contract, th that type of thing. Cause like at the point that someone fails their contract, breaches mm -hmm. it, like you're in a miserable situation. Like you're like, if you have to go yeah. to lawsuit against an insurance company, like, yeah, I'm sure you can win, but good luck. Right. Because you got to have the sure. wherewithal emotionally, mentally, financially, et cetera. Like, I sure hope I don't have 80% of my net worth in something that's going to breach. And then I got to go fight for it. Um, sure. but, um, yeah, that's interesting. I mean, this is brand new to me, so I'm asking yeah. questions that and, are just... And, and, and here's where the, the premise... Um, I think understanding this premise will help you understand the, the context of how this works. And that is, life insurance is not inherently an, a, an investment. Okay, and In fact, Nelson Nash talks about that too in his book, is this is not investment. Like, you're not supposed to park this money and let it stay there, right? Uh, this is supposed to be a, a, a financing tool or a foundation to your finances to which you take that... So your cash value is supposed to actually do something more than just sit there and then grow. You're supposed to use that towards like funding your next real estate project. You're supposed to use that to go buy crypto if you want. Um, you're supposed to use that to go finance your daughter's braces or homecoming dress or whatever. Um, it, it's really meant to be um, an ecosystem, right? To where it's different than just leaving your money in your checking account or financing it through the banks. Either way, you, you gotta finance like a purchase from someone. Is it going to be a life insurance company that you ultimately you're the benefactor or is it a bank and their sole motivation of lending you that money is so that they can make interest back in five, seven, 10 years. So to me, you know, let's say both are bad guys and, the, and, and they're both being held to a contract. One promises that the interest that you pay is going to benefit you. And the other says the interest that, that you pay is going to benefit them. I, both being bad guys and evil, terrible people. I would go and pick the, you know, the entity that says, yeah, the interest you're paying is ultimately going to benefit you. Right. So it's just, that's the difference. Certainly brother. That makes perfect sense. So cool, man. Um, love to ask this question. If you had a billion dollars and a um, hundred lifetimes of cash flow coming in monthly, what would you do mm -hmm. with your free time? Um, man, I, I love this game too much to where I, I, I can't sit back. Maybe I'll go away for my, about a week or two and then I'll get really, really like, I'll get anxiety of like, not having a purpose and, and I, I'm like, I, I'll go find someone to do. Right. So yeah, money, money is a motivator for me for sure. Like I, I, you know, I think knowing that I have a lot, I, I can have a lot of it. I can do a lot better for the world and that I can go serve people and, and make 
uh, contribute uh, financially to whatever mission that I, I believe to be is um, is important and and whatever I feel God's putting into my heart. Um, but even if I had a billion or a trillion dollars, I I, I don't know. I'd, I'd still feel driven by something more than just money, like you know, a purpose or or I get so bored. Like if I even if someone were to tell me, hey, go travel around the world, go see places, go to Cancun, uh, um, go to uh, wherever, right? I don't even know these places, but go, right? I, I would probably make it about halfway through and go, I, I just want to go back home and build something. Like, so I, I feel more energized and fueled by actually building something than as opposed to like just sitting and chilling. I, so I, I will tell you this. If I had a billion dollars, I would hire the best of the best teams and to go actually build something that's going to solve like a problem, right? Like I would go hire like Elon Musk, right? I'll go hire these people who are genius, people who are smarter than me. And I go, what's the biggest problem that we can solve in the world right now? And I, I, I assemble a team to go solve that. Um, and, and that would excite me more. Like I, I, knowing that I could die happy and go, I've done my work, sayonara. Like I can't even, I can't take, take the money with me, right? Like I, I can't do that. So the best thing I can do is like, like how can I amplify the heart of giving with that? Um, the resources I'm, that, that I've, I'm given. So yeah, I, I, I can never see myself like being on a, I'd be more miserable. I would actually be depressed if I were sitting in a, uh, like a beach somewhere and like the, the weather and everything. I'd be so depressed. Like, yeah, that's more horrifying yeah. to me than I, like, to, you know, it's just, it's weird. I know some people are like, oh my gosh, you're stupid. You're dumb. Like, why would you not take that offer? But no, like I, I, no, no, no. The prospect of living but not actually living, just it, it, that's that's frightening. So, yeah. Oh, dude, I love that answer. I think that is my favorite one yeah. so far. You just said you would pick yeah. the biggest problem in the world and go solve it. I love it. Yeah. I love that one so much. I would love to ask this question. Um, so, because um, I could say, I, I would say my myself in the spiritual realm is not as, as well as it should be, right? So I would like to know, um, if you're comfortable sharing, like, how do yeah. you use your faith to drive your business or how yeah. does that work? Um, let me rephrase that question. Cause like when you said, how do you use your faith to drive your business? I, I think here's what I, here's what I think I'm trying to, well, let me put it this way. Let me, let me, let me take a double take on that. Um, I, I don't use my faith per se. I, I think I'm driven by it. Right. Cause okay. when I, when you say if you use it, it's almost like, Oh my gosh, I'm a Christian. So all my Christian brothers and sisters, please do business with me, right? Like I think that's I, I know that's what you're not you're, you're not getting at that. But yeah, like, that's not what I meant. Yeah, immediately my mind. Yeah, immediately my mind went there. I'm like, oh, those people out there. Uh, <laughs> but I'm driven by here's here's what it is like. Because here's and I'll get vulnerable for a sec. Because like I, I'm always like I I, I want to do something good, right? I want to do something great for the world. Like I I want to participate and and make the world better. But a lot of times. You know, to me, I, I feel like what God's calling me to do is like, hey, you do what you need to do. Like, you do what you're doing right now and just watch me do it, right? Like, and that's the biggest thing I, I think a lot of Christian men and women uh, who are in business, they're like, I'm put, get on the armor of God. I'm going to go up there. I'm going to slay. I'm going to crush it. Like, God, tell me what I need to do. Like, if you want me to part the seas, yes, I'll do it. Like, if you want me to go kill the next Goliath, I'll do it. But a lot of times like, what God's telling us to do is just like, dude, chill out. Like, let me do it. Like, I, I got it, man. Like. You just need to watch me what I do and sit back, relax. And so uh, a lot of times it's weird because like I want to take credit for her, but like um, I have to I have to be in this realization like, um, yes, I, like I'm there like witnessing and doing doing stuff. But God oftentimes like 
he's taking credit, right? He's he's the one that's moving the the rocks forward. Like he's the one that's solving the problem, um, or or giving me the mission or whatever. So, um, yeah. So more recently, like my, my biggest uh, realization or aha was um, he's using a lot of God's using a lot of the businesses right now, uh, business leaders, men, women, uh, to facilitate God's redemption arc, right? Meaning that, um, and, and I, I, hear, I hear this a lot from other business owners too, so this has to be a, a, a spiritual thing. But a lot of times, like, they're realizing, business owners are realizing that what they have to offer to the world, um, it has to play, play a role in God's redemption. So, like, in our businesses, because we're in finances, um, again, like I said earlier in the podcast, like, mo money and, and heart, they're, like, connected. Like, you, you, can't, you cannot have one or the other, or one does not affect the other. So... Um, right. Matthew six says where your treasure is there, your heart yeah, will be also. Exactly. So I'm just like, I'm, I'm packing that in my own words. Um, yeah. so like the fact that I'm in that business of educating people in finances and helping, uh, facilitate that transformation tells me that like now, like I feel my work matters, right? Like not that I didn't feel it didn't like years ago, but now I feel like there's purpose behind it because what we do is a part, it's a puzzle piece to what God's really doing with the world of redeeming his people and bringing people back to him. Um, I get to play a very sliver role in that, but more so like I, I also have to come to the realization that again, I'm not the, I'm not the redeemer like God is right. And I'm just, yeah, I, I just, I have to witness that. And he, and God gives me my uh, skill set. He allows me to meet certain people to advance that specific cause. So, for the longest time, you know, uh, you know, when, when we talk about this, the, the Bible, Bible scripture of like, you know, seek his kingdom first and, you know, everything shall be added to you. Like to me, I thought it was like, oh, well, maybe I should like, maybe I need to give up business and like go into ministry or like, or maybe like I need to not do business anymore and go into like do missionary work. And now I'm realizing, no, like that's not what God's asking you to do. Like you continue doing your business, like kill it, go make millions and billions of dollars, but understand that your business is part of something that's bigger and when you become aware of that, that's when you know, like that's that's like aligning your what your awareness and consciousness in your heart to God's kingdom, right? So I always thought like you have to do something big, like oh my gosh, I've, I'm like Mother Teresa, I'm saving millions of people, like I'm feeding millions of people. That's great, like that's that's phenomenal. But I think God cares more about the the condition of our heart and how we're aligning what what we have and ultimately saying this is for the kingdom, right? This is for His redemption arc. The, the continuing story that God's redeeming his people. Um, so that's, that's the, re the realization I had that, uh, I guess, going back to your original question, Tim, that's, that's ultimately what's driving me today uh, for, for, you know, and I, that makes me feel alive, right? Like now I feel like I'm building something, not just so that I can be rich and have cool things, but like to actually have an impact um, and to, to actually have something that matters. Um, so, Yeah. Yeah, that, that was a huge, huge realization for me recently, and I and, and I'm 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 happy I get to share with this with you guys as well. Awesome. I just want to ask you a question that I've been thinking through the last maybe year or two. Like, I mean, it feels like for a lot of people, they of faith, like you go through this journey of trying to become successful, yeah. um, and yet you also have this this deep sense of desire to serve and to give value because it's a part mm -hmm. of your fabric, and so like the, the place that I'm at right now in my journey is, okay, so like I don't necessarily have to work to put food on the table anymore. It's really more of a, of a like purpose-driven element, right? Mm -hmm. So the questions I'm asking myself is how much do I chase success in the sense that bring more money in to promote the business so I can help more people 
versus give to these ideas like you talk about, give to the charities. How do you structure your thoughts and finances around that? Like how much money as a percentage, you don't even have to share this, but I know it's a personal yeah. question, but how do you structure your giving in, in like completely external ways to reinvesting all the money in your business to grow the business so you can have a greater impact? Yeah, no, excellent question, man. I, I think that's that's something that a lot of people uh, have to hear because automatically, and, and I'm gonna get, I, I know I'm gonna get a lot of hate and flack for this, and and even in my own position, like I, I do have a role in my church, um, you know, my particular local church, and so I know I'm gonna get a lot of flack. People are gonna, I, I hope I get, I don't get nasty phone calls, uh, but here, here's here's where it is. Like, I think too many Christian business owners, especially business owners and entrepreneurs, believe that like they're they're doing all this so that they can be like the the number one tither in their church. Like I, I simply feel, here's my perspective on that. That That's probably the biggest trap that I think a lot of business owners and, and entrepreneurs have um, that are, you know, pursuing God because here's what I, I ultimately don't want giving or contribution to be is I don't want it to become a checkbox and you just check it off. I'm like, all right, I'm done. That's that's my role. Continue my life, right? I, th I think um, part of contrib contribution, yes, there's money side of it where you do give money away. That's great and all. Uh, and I, I, I have a couple more things to say about that, but more more important, I think, where for where you, us who who have you know who will be considered like made it, I think where where we now stand to to um, you know where 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 we are in, in interface because we've been building 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 and we don't really have to build anymore, right? Um, I th I think where we are in, in terms of our phase of growth is now it becomes strictly discipleship is how do I, how do I create more me or like, how do I create, um, how do I pop, like multiply me, right. Of, of, of my effort or, or, you know, what God's given me and, and to, and to others. So I think it's less now about, I mean, con financial contribution is important. Uh, and I think what it needs to be is about spirit led contribution. Meaning if God is, if the spirit is telling me that I, I got to take my money and put it in here, Boom, right? Like as opposed to ah, ten percent. Here it is, you know, right? It's it, like, I hate it to be. I hate it when it becomes emotion, then then a spiritual emotion or sp spiritual emotion. So like that's something I, I caution people about. Like if God, if you feel a very strong spiritual conviction um, and and a tugging in your heart to continue doing that, go for it, right? Boom. But I, I warn and caution people not to do it out of guilt, shame, or the pressure of people. Like oh, I'm gonna lose my you know, I, I'm going to lose my church status if I don't do this because uh, now you have church and people in your church is is now your idol, right? Because if you take judgment or if you allow the, the authority of how you're seen from people, then people are your idol, right? As opposed to God, you know, really asking what God thinks of who you are and in your heart. Um, so kind of encapsulating all this, I think where we are, like Matt, Tim, like especially people who don't necessarily need to chase and keep building, I think where we are now, what, what we're being asked to do is now go and turn around and train people or give people, plant, uh, challenge people, um, disciple people to basically come to that same arrival of like now they're, they're, they're contributing more to the world and we've multiplied, right? Um, I think that's, that's, that's probably the biggest thing for me. It, it all depends on people's hearts and stuff, but um, I've come to the conclusion it's not just about finances, um, you know, the finances tied to the hard part, right? Um, so mm -hmm. yeah, I so my my point there is like be careful about blindly just checking off boxes uh, by doing your ten percent, which again not a bad thing, but again just uh, 
if we're if we're called to live a life in pursuit of of, of Jesus, I think a lot of that has to be led. Uh, it has to be spirit led for sure. Um, yeah, I, I can spend hours unpacking that, but yeah. it, that's probably the best way. I can say. <laughs> I, I, um, that was yeah. absolutely a tremendous answer, by the way. I love listening to this stuff, which is why I asked it. Um, yeah, absolutely tremendous. I mean, I really loved the whole thing, man. Um, Sam Clock, man. Hang on, like, Tim. Hang on, Tim. Hang on, Tim. I got another question. Right. Go ahead. <laughs> so uh, along those corollaries. So yeah. one of the things that I have done, and I'm curious if you did the same thing, is I defined a specific amount. Because mm-hmm. like I, I was scared that I would have this creeping number of life expenses that would keep going up over time. And I'm like, okay, this is my number. If I hit this number, I'm declaring myself financially free. Mm-hmm. And then so I can change. And I kind of went through a similar conclusion that you did, which was, so when I hit that number, I was like, okay, now I'm going to go serve right on a different level. But then I realized like, wait, all of my skills, all the things that I built are in this industry. Like this is how I can deliver real value. And so I've kind of come to this conclusion. One of the greatest ways I think I can help the world is by just staying in the space and helping people get out of their financial issues and so on and so forth. Did you do anything like that? Like how, how do you define like how much you consume for yourself and how much you give to the world? Yeah. So really here's what I ask God all the time is, you know, anytime I'm, I'm consuming big, something big, or I'll give you an example. Like I, I just bought a Tesla, right? It's freaking awesome. But I, before I did, before I took out the card or checkbook, I, I asked God, is this, is this going to be good for me? Like, really, is it gonna, is it going to be good for me? Like, is it going to destroy me? Is it going to um, affect my heart in any way? Is it going to lead me down a path of, you know, uh, of, of chasing the wrong thing. Um, am I, you know, it's kind of one of those things where like you put the ladder on the wrong, wrong side of the wall. Right. And, and I'm, cli- am I climbing the wrong wall here? Uh, and I asked that guy, I asked that to God and his, and, and, and part of it, and God sometimes says, yeah, it's good for you to go do it. You know, it, it's, and we have to also remind ourselves that God, God is a, is a father, right? He's, he's a loving father. He, he, you know, if you have kids, you guys understand, like you want the best and the awesome stuff for your kids, right? Like the toys or whatever, but there's always that one toy, you know, like, uh, you, know, you, you can't have that, like, not yet. Or, or at least, like, you know, like, I, I know parents are, like, uh, with their, especially boys, like, oh, you can't play Call of Duty yet, right, or whatever. Um, and I, I get it, right? So it's one of those things, like, I'm asking God, Dad, right, like, hey, is it, am I okay to do this? Like, is it going to be good for me? Because God can see all sides, all directions, right? So, like, at the end of this, am I, am I going to be okay? He says, yeah, it's fine, you know, enjoy, right? Uh, but there, there are moments where like, can I do this? He's like, no, <laughs> heck no. Right. Don't, don't touch it. You know, keep, keep it far away. It's going to affect your heart blah, blah, blah. So how does that come, come back to your question? Well, I ask that question every time when I'm, um, looking at my cons- consumption pattern and, and my giving pattern. Right. Um, and it's different. Like there is no, like it, there is no right or wrong. And this irks some people because some people are very methodical or like, well, I want God to give me a clear yes, no black and white. Like, and and a lot of people are like, I need that. I need like script. Like I need, I need something to follow. Right. But that's just it. Like following God is literally like, you only see the next step ahead of you. Like, and, and like the next immediate inch. And I, I believe it's built that way. God does that on purpose so that we can continue that relationship with him. Cause if he gives us the entire script, it's like, okay, here's how it's going to go. A, B, C, D, E, F, and make sure you turn at step F and make sure you make this pivot. Right. Got it. All right. And then now you're like 20 years, like, God, I don't need you. Thank you for your direction. Appreciate your, your, your service. I, 
I don't need you anymore, right? The whole freaking point, right, of of why we follow Jesus is that for that that is that for that commune, right? It's it's for us to be have that discussion of like, God, what do you want? What do you want me to do with this money here, right? What do you want me to do with this excess that I have? What do you want me to do with with? And believe me, I I am not perfect at, at this whatsoever. I I will be the first one to say I'm terrible at this. I make mistakes. I'm human. Um, sometimes I don't ask God, and I I make that decision, and I'm like, crap, I made the wrong decision, right? So I, I get that, but it, it is that I think um, following following God, following Jesus is to me. I I, tr- I try to keep it that simple. It's like every day I'm asking, okay, God, what is it? What is it you want me? What what is it that you want me to do or see or hear today, particularly? Um, so I, I really think that's what it means, you know, when you know Lord's Prayer, you know, give us the, give us our daily bread, um, not give us a buffet for the next five weeks, right? Because then we'd be fat and you know, satisfy and we don't need anything. Um, but the whole relation and God's not some Machiavellian thing. We're like, Oh, I'm going to make you suffer so that you rely on me. Right? No, it's the whole thing is about relationship, right? The whole thing is about, um, you know, building that bond. You know, it's one of those things like you become a best friend with someone when you like do a sleepover with them and then you do something really hard with them. Like we've all been there as, as men, like we climb a mountain together you know, and, and we're strangers and we come out of it best friends. Right. It's kind of like that with, with relationship with God is we go through things like, oh my gosh, at the end, we just like, we're not best friends, right? But like literally what, imagine like you're climbing a mountain and there's a helicopter that comes in, picks you up, drops you up the top of the mountain. And at the end of it, you're still strangers, right? So it, to me, I, I've, I've come to realization that it is not the, the product or the, the sequence or the steps. It's really just the process of, of going through that, through life. And in that is you become, you know, you and God become best friends. It's like, it's because you, you're having that, you're going through hardships together. You're, you're going through challenges. You're celebrating victories together. It, it just, that to me is why I believe Christianity, that's what makes Christianity different than any other God or any other religion. Because every other religion says you have to do this, 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 and this, 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 and then you can go be saved, but you can, you, you never have a true relationship with your deity, right? Whereas God comes down and says, I want to have a relationship with you. Let's do life together because I love you, right? That's, that's, the, the, that's the, the story uh, framework, right? So um, I know I'm getting off track with this, but like going back to your original question of consumption and that, like everyone's a little different. Um, everyone, you know, if God wants me to be at, like I'm only doing $3,000 a month consuming and I'm giving 500 and I'm making this much, like if God wants me to do that because it's good for me in my heart, got it. Understood. Perfect. I'll follow that, right? Uh, but if God says, "I'm going to give you this spe- this capacity where you, you you're going to spend ten thousand dollars a month, you're going to make hundred million dollars a year, whatever," right? Perfect, right? So it's it's the parables of talents, right? God gives you know five, three or five, two, one, or right? Like I don't know the exact number, but five, two, one, right? So it really doesn't matter what how much He gives us. It's really about that. Like what is He doing through that in the relationship? So. Um, yeah. So does that help kind of how I'm thinking about this? Cause there's no, I, there is no like black and white script. Cause I know that's what most people are looking for and that's what the, that's what people get uncomfortable with, but get used to different, get used to uncomfortable because it's not about us. Right. So, yeah. Yeah. I think we're just looking for genuine, real answers. You know, there's a lot of things in life that just aren't black and white. They're just not one way, right. you know, like two plus two, that's four. I mean, for rational thinkers. And so there's a lot of things in life that aren't that clear. So right. we just love getting the different perspectives of, 
of people and how they process through, like sometimes these almost competing yeah. concepts of, you know, being really successful financially and being completely also dedicated to the heart part of you and the servant part of you. So I appreciate you diving into that. Yeah, absolutely. And I think there's a, I mean, like a lot of this, we can't, we, we can never have a full understanding of like, it's just impossible. I think there was a pastor, I can't remember his name, but he said, if your theology is one that you can understand your God completely, then you have a very small God, right? Like, like we'll never be able to understand the capacity to which like we can understand our God, right? It's just not, we can't fathom. It's just, you know, so like, again, I don't have all the answers. I'm not perfect. I make mistakes every day. Right. But yet I'm, I'm reminded there's grace, there's compassion and there's, uh, you know, um, you know, that's why Jesus is here. Like he, he's, he's here to, to help us with that. So, um, yeah. So I hope, I hope, I hope that, that all, that at least made sense. Right. <laughs> Although we can't understand the, the, the fullness of all this. Oh, dude, it all made sense. I mean, the reason I ask is because I think I have a weakness in that realm. So, I mean, I love talking to people about this because I think spirituality is important, even if, you know, perhaps if it's not Christianity, it doesn't matter what it is. I think you need some sort of spiritual base in order to truly live a life of freeness and happiness, which is essentially what we're going for in this show, man. So I appreciate yeah. you for being vulnerable and totally honest with us because um, I thought it was an epic response, epic response, man. So thank you yeah. so much for being candid and everything. Um, yeah. and, Mr. Clock. And, and I'll say okay. one more thing. And I, I know I'm going to get hit again on this. I, I hate, I, uh, people are going to give me so That's much hate, right. but I, I'm, I'm telling you right now, like, and, and again, like I know all, all three of us share kind of the similar faith here, but I, I, I truly believe that the reason why I believe Christianity is a true, true religion is for that reason I, I talked about. And every other religion is basically like, uh, you know, Chinese made counterfeit is I, I, I'm sorry. I, I, that's the best way I can say, say it. But you know, I, I, when Jesus says, I am the way I'm the truth. And I, I am, uh, I'm the way, the truth and life. Everything else is counterfeit. It's just, again, I'm not afraid of saying it. It's just my, 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 my conviction. <laughs> hey man, I love your conviction, brother. Yeah. Um, you, you gotta be committed to whatever you're committed in, in life, yeah, right? So yeah. I mean, you're committed to yeah. your religion, you're committed to your career, you're committed to helping people, which is so yeah. important, man. Yeah. Um, so anybody listening, man, like what would be the best way for them to get in touch with you if they want to execute on this trilogy? Yeah. So, um, yeah, so specifically the trilogy, uh, email us info at the We'll be more than happy to help start your journey. Uh, if you want to connect with me personally, I'm on Facebook, uh, YouTube, particularly, I don't do Instagram anymore. Instagram just, I don't know. It's just one of those things where like, you might as well call it, you know, Instagram porn.com. Like it's just, there's so much stuff there. Like, I, I don't want to see it. I don't want my kids seeing it. I don't want my wife seeing it. So I'm like, I'm, I, I'm, I'm done. <laughs> so yeah. All right. Sounds good, man. So that'll yeah. all be in the show notes. Um, I am extremely grateful for all the time you spent with us. We just spent an extra 30 minutes easily. So thank you so much for, Dude, yeah, for, for, for um, sharing your business, your life, your journey, everything. You've been so open and honest, man. Um, and to those of you out there chasing freedom, this is one of the most notes I've ever written down for an episode. So please commit to taking some sort of action within the next seven days and tell somebody you know that can hold you accountable and go take massive, imperfect action. Go, go, go before you know it, you too will be living a life of freedom. We'll catch you on the next one. Take care.